when people say to me, why do you write about death so much? Why do your books end in death? So I think my childhood was surrounded and, and entwined with it. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting, well-known, clever people and try and work out what they're all on about. And um, I'm delighted to have with me uh, the excellent, my friend, Susan Hill, the novelist. Uh, welcome to Confession, Susan. Thank Very you, Very nice John. to have you here. At last. We've been trying to make this date for ages. And you kept standing me up. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> ah, now, what I really want to talk to you about on a gloomy day like today is where you come from, Scarborough. Tell me about Scarborough, because that's your, that's your background. That's where you were born. That's where you're from, isn't it? Yeah, it's where I was born. And... It's obviously not true of everybody because a lot of people have been either displaced or just moved all the time or they've been born and brought up somewhere not especially interesting. But it's been one of the great gifts of life is to have been born and brought up in Scarborough, which is you cannot spoil a place which is on the sea, on the cliffs, wonderful buildings. You can demolish a few of the buildings, but you cannot change nature. It may change itself, but... It meant that the background to my growing up was this wonderful place and the sea and the north. And there's no doubt that there's something about being a northerner. And, of course, I've not been a northerner for far longer than I was a northerner. You don't sound like a northerner. Oh, I can. Okay. Oh, okay, we'll be careful. We'll be careful that <laughs> A few drinks Frida. inside you. <laughs> when I go back, it takes me half an hour to oh, get Oh, is that there. right? Yeah. But okay. You, it's not conscious. People yes. think, ooh, you've gone posh. Yes. No, it just goes. I okay. mean, any any accent will go yeah, yeah, unless yeah, you yeah. try. Yeah. But there is something special about the North, about warmth and solidarity and people looking out for each other. It's got its rough side and it's got its raw side. Um, but you never lose that. And when you come to... I came down south when we were, I was nearly 17, went to a Midlands grammar school and then I came to London to university and people I know thought I was brash and cheeky and rude that's northern and I was really upset because I wasn't being rude and brash and, and nosy everybody is like that in in the north you talk to somebody in the bus queue and after half an hour you know their life history you know everything about them they about you you're calling them my petal and it, it's just it's, it's it's a means of it's affection isn't it i mean it's, it is affection. it's community warmth yeah and people think it's sentimental perhaps it is but it really gives you something that i think you never lose and i love scarborough go back sometimes i still got friends i was at school with there but the trouble is it became for quite a long time a very run-down, impoverished place, as a lot of places did in, and still are in the north. It is a pocket of deprivations, no question. It's still got its smart middle-class side and it's got these beautiful buildings. It's, uh, it has the Stephen Joseph Theatre where the woman in black started. But there is an under underbelly of in all those northern towns the reason i couldn't go back is simply that it's too too far from everything it, you know it's a long it takes a long time um but it's, it's so, so tell me about your brain. so tell me about your parents and your your sort of family background and the house in which you were brought up give me some flavor of that ah well um it's quite complicated and 
the older I get, the more interesting I find it. And of course, now my parents are dead, I can't find a lot of the answers. A lot of a lot of people who might have been able to tell me, and you want to know more, I think, as you get older. Uh, my father was in the RAF, and my mother was working up in Edinburgh, and she had been in love with a Polish. I think he was in the air force, the Polish air force. A lot of Poles were, of course, in with us in the war, and this was it, it, 1930, 40, 39, 40. And he was sent back to Poland, and she wasn't allowed to marry him. Um, you know, they, by the by, the Polish army, and she couldn't go back with him to Poland, and she was so devastated. I only heard this from my father after my mother died. My mother never said anything about it. All I knew was that there were one or two Polish books on our bookcase. I don't know why. You don't think when you're a child, do you, that no. things are just there? No. And she said this was such a devastating experience that she was going to marry the next man. Oh, your met. poor dad. She walked into the George Hotel bar in Edinburgh, where a lot of RAF people, including my father, he started to talk to her, as happens in bars, and she thought, oh, all right. And she said, I said I'd marry the next man I met, and my father, I loved him dearly, but he was extremely weak. You could manoeuvre him and manipulate him because he was very, very soft. And I think he thought, oh, she's nice. Oh, oh, all right, she wants to marry me. Uh, OK. Well, this is not a good basis for a marriage. Wow. He then went off back wherever he was in the RAF and my mother was pregnant. They, they married were, quite quickly then, didn't they? They married straight away. Registry office in Edinburgh. Like, what, in when how straight away? Four weeks. I think you had to Unbelievable. So this was... It might have been idyllic, but of course it wasn't. It was a stupid thing to do. She was then pregnant with me, and my father was off in the RAF. She didn't want to stay in Edinburgh. She didn't want to go back to her family who were in Sheffield because all those places are dangerous. She thought, I've got to have a baby in a safe place. More or less looked on the map and thought, right, by the sea, not too far from Scotland, because she loved it, picked on Scarborough, went, found a doctor, found a nursing home, and that was where she stayed. I was born there, and we stayed there for 16 years. Oh, so um, Sheffield was dangerous because of the bombing? Yeah. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. I yes, mean, yes. those cities just yes, weren't. She yes, felt yes, if she was having a child, she had a bit of responsibility I not see, to be yes, there. Of course, yeah. And she'd run away from home when she was 14, didn't get on with her family at all. Um, I never, ever got to the bottom of so much of it, Giles, and I really wished I had. She had one sister, and they were 12 months apart. And my aunt Muriel was the first one, the elder one. She was really pretty. She had bubbly blonde hair. She had a lovely little personality, which she kept all her life. And my mother came along and she was mousy-haired, not ugly, but plain, had none of this at all, was a bit bolshy, but I took after her, you know. <laughs> and they hated each other from um... the day she arrived. And that fight, which was very occasionally sort of made up and then fell apart again, that fight went on. Until they both, well, till my mother died first. It was terrible. So I, my mother said, I'm never having any other children because look what it was like. Oh, I see, my... I see, I see, I see, I see. So it was a very strange, as a kid, you accept these things. As a so the relationship old... between your mum and your dad oh, must have been a strange oh, one, really. No, we won't go there. I mean, they used to fight and my mother used to hit my father. Father never hit back, you see, that was him. He just took it all. My mother was... 
I think she was a disappointed woman. She had a lot of talents that she hadn't made use of. She resented me because she didn't really want to have a child, she discovered. I was like her. I wasn't the beautiful, talented, blonde, bubbly. But she had a great skill. She, When she first left home, she went to be a seamstress in Jenner's, the department store in Edinburgh, with people having their clothes, women having their clothes made. She was brilliant at it. I mean, she could make and design a wedding dress, make it without a pattern. Do She did this. Once they, once we were in Scarborough, she set up this business and it was amazing. I, I met people when I was growing up who said, oh, are you making the sort of wedding dresses your mother make, made? I can't hold a needle. And this was the other thing. I was bookish and studious, friendly as well. I had lots of mates, but... She couldn't cope with this. Oh, she doesn't know. She wanted, a... she wanted her clothes. She wanted somebody who could make beautiful clothes. And I mean, she was proud of me in a funny way, but it, she didn't know which way up I was, really. And I didn't know which way up she was, and it was a recipe for... And what about your dad? You and your dad? Because he was anything for a quiet life and an easy life. Did you resent he... him for being weak? No, not really, no. I mean, I loved him, but he was impossible because I used to want to shake him. Um, but now I look back, Giles, the most extraordinary thing I realise. He came out of the RAF early because he'd got something wrong with an arm. Um, and he didn't have a job. No jobs up in the north of England, no jobs in Scarborough. So he came down to the Midlands where there was work. This is after the war now. This is in, you know, late 40s, 50s. There were factories going up. There was aircraft factory, car factories. The industrial Midlands was the thriving place. Thousands and thousands of people went there to get work. He came down, he got a job as a clerk in an aircraft factory and he lived in a hostel. He did this in order, A, to send money back home for us and B, in order to accumulate time lived in Coventry to be able to get a council flat because you had to have been there so long and, you know, established. Yes, yes. So for six years, he did that. And now I think back, he came home at Christmas and he came home for two weeks in the summer. That was it. And I look back and I think, nowadays, he wouldn't have done that. No, men don't, some may. But it was an incredibly So for a large part of your childhood, you didn't really have your dad there at all? No, I mean, daddy was coming home for Christmas. It was a big deal, or coming home for a weekend. And, of course, the moment he arrived, they fought, which which just seemed so unfair to him. So he used to leave early because he couldn't stand it. So it was all very unhappy. And like many before me, um, I buried myself in books. I wrote stories. I read stories. I was lived in other worlds um, because the... I will not say that I was, I was not abused in any way. I don't mean anything like that. But the, the world in which I lived with my parents was so unpleasant and uncomfortable that I needed... To escape, so what? And what were those? To? What were those books? What were those early sort of like? Oh, Alice in Wonderland. Was oh, was the first it? One, and I still, you know, I, if I open that and look at those John Tenniel drawings, yeah. they just catapult me back to being five, six, seven, looking at those pictures and living in that world, and everything. I every time I read any of it, the whole I realise I lived in it. I lived through the looking glass. Everything about it, and I still get that feeling of this is where I belong. So let's just go, let's just, let's follow your story a little bit. So you're bookish in Scarborough and then then at Move some point you, you moved to Coventry because yeah. your father's got the council house. Yeah, got a council flat. Yeah, a council flat. We lived on a council estate. People say that council estates in the 1950s were a little paradise. It's absolutely true. There was no violence, no no problems, what no trouble. What estate was it? Um, what estate was it? 
It in was Coventry. called Tile Hill. Okay, I don't know that still one. Still there. Oh, I, know still a, there. I know a few yeah. estates in Coventry. Um, and it it was a good place to be. And people said, oh, you lived on a council estate as if it was a slum. It was not a slum. The flats themselves are not very exciting. It was on the sixth floor. And that's fine. I liked it. And Coventry was a different place. The places were. But Another place had been, I mean, but flattened. So oh, the, these were all new be, places, absolutely. were they? These were all new flats, were they? they were post-war put new. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we were the first in, yes. Yeah. Um, but going to a grammar school in Coventry from a rather lovely but not very advanced convent school in Scarborough. Where a convent school. It was a convent. We weren't Catholics, but I went to a convent. And actually, it was a very happy convent. I loved it. And although there were nuns, there were lots of lay teachers as well. I mean, it wasn't just nuns teaching you. But it was of the, of the sort that Sister Cecilia would say, this arithmetic is challenging you, isn't it, Susan? You don't, you don't like it, do you? Well, no. Why don't you go to the library and read a book? I know you'd rather do that. Nobody tried to make you do anything. OK, right, right, right. So good. I arrived in Coventry. Uh, we moved at, the, at Easter. So I'd already done two terms of my A-level course. The course was different. The set books were different. The examining board was different. So I had to catch up with everybody else. They were all much better educated, cleverer, brighter, different. I mean, I was learned and booky, but I wasn't very clever and I hadn't done a lot of things. So that was a hard challenge. But I wanted to go to university and I wanted to go to London because it was London. And London, when you're young, is a romantic place. And my head teacher said, who didn't approve of me at all, especially when I wrote a book when I was 17, and it got into the Daily Express. Oh, oh um, we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she said, what would you want to do? And I said, well, I want to go to university. I want to go to London, probably King's College. And she said, well, let me tell you here and now that you don't stand a chance of getting in. So why don't you aim for Birmingham? I said, I don't want to go to Birmingham. I want to go to London. So she more or less washed her hands of me. So I just applied anyway. Well, I know you got in because your face is on the outside of King's <laughs> College. <laughs> Very proud of that. I'm, I'm proud of having got in and gone. And it was just the right time to be there. 1960 was when I went up. And, you know, the city was still hot printer's metal and the papers were still rolling off the, the presses and the judges and the lawyers were where they were. The newspaper men were where they were. It's changed out of all recognition. You looked, walked onto the um, balcony at King's and looked out on the Thames, which was full of working river traffic. So coming from boats. coming from Scarborough and then Coventry, going to the Strand, I mean, to the centre of, I mean, the centre of everything, really, the Strand is and oh, King's is. Yeah. That must have been quite a wonderful thing. It was, and it was a bit overwhelming. You suddenly realise how big London is and how it's just everything about it was something I'd, I'd only been there twice, once for a visit and once for my interview. And then you only go into one little corner. And I lived in a a Catholic hostel up in South Kensington, so tube in and out every day. Um, it was a bit discombobulating, but that experience, again, I look back and think, I was so fortunate to have that. And King's at that time, well, it still is a great college, but it was particularly good, smaller than it is now, particularly good on the arts. We ha I was really lucky to go then. And to have the English course as it used to be, which stopped at 1880, because nothing obviously had ever happened after that. <laughs> but we did Anglo-Saxon and we did the chronological run through English literature. And that background, to have that reading and, and 
studying background as a writer is absolutely When did you start to write? So you've already mentioned this book. Oh, when I was five. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I read Alice in Wonderland and wanted to have written it, so I wrote other things. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was always writing stories and writing them down. And when I was nine, um, this is very, this was a very strange experience. When I was nine, I wrote a play for my class to act. And the sister thought it was so good and we did it all so well that we could do it in front of the school. So we did. End of. And about 20 years ago, I went to an old school reunion. The the convent closed, actually, uh, sadly, but there were still a lot of people around. So we had an old school reunion and somebody brought along the handwritten copy of that play. And she said, look, do you remember this? Oh, the years rolled back. (laughs) But that was how I, I just always wrote. And I knew in my bones that... I wasn't really going to be very good at anything else. I wasn't going to be a linguist. I wasn't going to be a sports person. I wasn't going to be an art person. I just knew always I was a writer. I wasn't going to be one. I was one. So when we moved to Coventry and I was catching up on... That's really interesting. I wasn't going to be one. I was one. I was one. You sort of knew it right from the start. I think this is true. It's it's true with a lot of musicians, isn't it? From day one, almost. They are musicians. They don't become them. You learn your trade. And I thought, well... You write novels, don't you, when you're grown up and you're 17, you're grown up. I started to write a novel. I was 15 when I started it and took it with us to Coventry and finished it while I was doing A-levels. God, when I think... And having finished it, I thought, well, send it to a publisher. That's what you do. I, I, I borrowed my father's old typewriter, buried myself in my room and typed it. Those old, really heavy, clanky typewriters, hard work. And I sent it off to a publisher, um, Hutchinson. And... I just had this extraordinary confidence, this inner knowledge that it would would be published. I mean, it sounds so arrogant. And it wasn't arrogant. It was just a feeling, well, I'm a writer. I've written a book. So There you go. Yeah. And (laughs) unfortunately, they decided that the publishers, a novel by somebody who'd started it when she was 15, finished it when she was 17, 18, was something you got publicity for. And it was about a middle-aged couple and a breakdown of a marriage. I don't know how I knew anything about any of that. It was set in the theatre world in London. Don't ask, Giles. Right. Um, <laughs> what was it called? The Enclosure. Right. Do not read it, anybody out there. If it's around, Do not read it. <laughs> it's terrible. It is terrible. <laughs> but they decided, right, OK, teenage girl writes middle-aged marriage novel, and they, it was the headline in the Daily Express gossip column the Daily Express was the Daily Mail of those days, was Teenage Sue Writes Sex Novel, with a photograph of me walking down the path in my school uniform. How well did that go down with my head teacher? Oh, my uh, word. Uh, sex novel, that's what... The... It wasn't. I mean, for goodness sake, but this is what they wanted. Yes, yes, yes. yes Francois yes. Sagan's Bonjour Tristesse had come out a few years before, and I think they thought, right, we've got to, we'll have an English... Oh, I see, Sagan. I see, I see. It took me a very long time to live that down. It really did. And, and People it still, teased you about still it. still crawls out of the woodwork occasionally now. Really? I, I mean, what was really funny was that the headmistress who sent for me when the Daily Express came out and said I was a disgrace to the school and she was within a whisker of expelling me, as if it had all been my fault that they'd done these headlines, and... It was only because I'd got a place at King's College and I was still doing Latin A-level that she didn't want me to fail, uh, that she would not expel me. But she read the riot act and I was led to believe that I was the worst thing that had ever happened to that school. What was funny was that sort of like 40, 50 years later, I had a letter from her 
saying she'd just read one of my books and she'd been following my career with such enthusiasm. I always knew what I thought. Oh, oh I've had one of those. Hypocrisy it's in terrible. that moment. Yeah. So that's where we were. I went to university, read English, which I loved, got my degree. Boys, are boys a part of the, the part of the? Uh... They weren't then. Not really. I mean, we had. The, it was. It's a mixed college. It always was. Lots of mates. No, I wasn't. I actually wanted to get my degree and I wanted to write another book and I wasn't really interested. Finished it and then thought, right, well, okay, I'll go back home and live now and I'm going to be a writer. So I wrote another book, which was even worse than the first one, and it bombed, quite rightly. So I didn't write anything for five years. I got a job as a journalist I um, on the local paper. I did all the book reviews and stuff. So I was the book reviewer who reviewed everything from mountaineering to gardening, and I know nothing about either. And where was this? This was In Coventry. This was back yeah. in Coventry. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I needed a bit more money. I wanted a flat of my own. Couldn't afford one. I needed a bit more money and another job to support me while I wrote another book. So... By that time, Coventry Cathedral, it was the new cathedral was opened in 1962. And I met somebody from it and I thought, I wonder if there's anybody wants any work there, you know, a job. And they did. They wanted somebody to basically start a library, it, not as in the great cathedral libraries of the past, but there was no library. Everything had gone up in flames with the, with the uh, old cathedral. So I was given £5 a week and, and a, a budget until start a small... Cathedral Library, which was a, a lovely what thing a to do. Job. It was lovely. I loved it. And the cathedral, I just loved being there. Um, I loved everything about it. I loved the people and the place and the building. And although having been brought up in a Catholic school with Catholic services and um, everything, because we non-Catholics had to still join in with all the rest. So I'm an expert on retreats and Blessed Virgin Mary and all of that. But the cathedral just, I just knew. Did you have any religion from your parents? Yeah, I mean, I be, yes, my mother. Well, this is where they really scored my parents. And it, I think about it today, Giles, and it, I don't know whether it could happen. My mother was an Anglican, the sort of Anglican who went to church on uh, Good Friday, Easter Day and Christmas Day. Okay. My dad was a Catholic who didn't, well, he did go to Mass on and off. Um and he was very much a Catholic believer of the old style. My mother was very much um, high church Anglican. My father was a Labour voter. He, although he was clerical and administrative workers' union, so he was a white collar. But he was shop steward for his union in the aircraft factory, and he was a Labour voter and a Catholic. Now that marriage, think about it. Those two, they made the one sensible decision of their lives which was we will not talk about politics or religion because we don't want to convert each other. We're never going to agree. <coughs> and, you know, they never, ever fell out about it. Okay. They never did. And I was more or less left to you go which way you feel is right. And neither of them put pressure on me. So I was always going to have a Christianity of some sort, I think. But who knew? And um, I went to the cathedral and thought, this is for me. This is right. I see. That was that was when you sort of chose Anglicanism as it absolutely, were. and Anglicanism for me would still be a cathedral. I mean, I love cathedrals. I love the worship in them. I love everything about them, and 
there isn't one near enough to be a regular congregation member, but I think there is something special. And Coventry Cathedral, particularly special at that time as oh, well. Yes. All that sense of hope and reconciliation, all of those yep. sorts of cross themes. Of that, the cross of nails. And what was extraordinary as well was that in those days, you know, people, it was such a big thing. People were still queuing to get in. You know, you were on timed tickets, um, like Strictly Come Dancing shows or something. It was absolutely the place to see. And the, the artists that they used... Um, when you look back, it was quite extraordinary. In a pretty austere, not very well-off time, to have the hope and enterprise to build this cathedral um, I mean, that great, was amazing. That great tapestry oh, that hangs yeah. down. And the John Piper window. The I mean, John all Piper windows. All the colour is astonishing, isn't it? And that is another thing that sort of, I mean, I was pretty young. That's all kind of in my bones, rather like Scarborough is. And I still have it there if I walk into that cathedral, which I don't very often. The other thing that happened to me, and I don't want to... It's not something I want to go into today, but I fell in love with the organist. And we were going to be married, and he died suddenly. Uh, I was 30, and I was finishing another book in Aldborough, and he just went on a walk with a friend and had a heart attack. Um, But that's another story. I wrote a book about it. And interestingly, it was the cathedral that saved me um, because the whole cathedral, of course, was in terrific shock. And the Sunday after was Easter Sunday. He died on the Good Friday, uh, the Monday Thursday. And the Sunday after, I went to the early morning service and the presenter, Joseph Poole, handed me an envelope and he said, don't read this now, read it when you get away from here. And it was the most touching letter, but he said, at the moment you are going through a very traumatic experience... You must write about it. Not yet, but you must write a novel about this. In a year's time, you will begin. And it was like, you will. And I absolutely, in a year's time, I went back to Aldborough where I'd written it in the same house and I wrote in the springtime of the year, which was based not on the story, but all the emotions are the same. You know, you can't fabricate those. The story was different. Um... And I thought that was a gift, that really was. And to be told, you will do it. And 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 your emotions during that time are formatted by Easter as well, by the yeah, whole Easter yeah. stuff. Easter, Easter. I still find Easter really difficult because of that. I, I mean, it is the most... You're sort of supposed to. <laughs> yeah, it is the most important. I mean, Christmas is fun, but it is the most important, as we know. And yet I still find it... I, I almost kind of want to dodge it. Shall we just swerve Easter and go straight on to the summer holidays? Because it is... But you don't, All do that you? is bound up. No, you don't. No. So, there we are in Coventry. And then, I mean, I was writing and went on writing and never stopped. Where's the, where's the breakthrough moment in terms of your career? I think there have been several. I think, in a way, the first book was the breakthrough, in a funny way, and that yeah. was a false start. And then, probably, the group of books which were Strange Meeting, The Bird of Night, In the Springtime of the Year, um, Stories in a Bit of Singing and Dancing. That little group of books, which I think was the best work I ever did and ever will do, suddenly, you know, they won prizes. The Bird of Night was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and won what was the Whitbread then. It's now the Costa Prize. Um, I'm the King of the Castle, that was the other one, that won the Somerset Morn Prize. All of a sudden... Five books all exploded uh, and they got a lot of attention. But then, um, again, that was a sort of huge start. But then I got married, I had my family, um, had 
lots and lots of obstetric troubles, which took up a lot of time. So I kind of, again, had another hiccup, if you like. And I didn't write anything while the children were... Well, my first daughter was... Until she went to full-time school at five, really. I did bits of journalism. But I very much wanted to be at home with her um, and be a, be a sort of not a writer and not a studious person. I wanted to be a wife and, you know, look after a house and a husband and a baby. And it was, I loved it. I did it. And you have two two kids. I have two now. Yeah. But we had a daughter in the middle who died. She was very premature. And now I think she probably would have survived, but... They tried their best. She was premature and then she lived for five weeks. And that's the other, that's the formative experience. But I tell you what, I spoke to my elder daughter about this recently. What was her name? Jessica. Oh, Imogen. The one who died was Imogen. The elder daughter is Jessica. And she was seven when this happened. And the John Ratcliffe Hospital where Imogen was born were not only amazing with the baby and with us, but they were wonderful with Jessica. And the nurses particularly insisted that this was her sister, that she came in to see her. They even let her sort of get a bit of cotton wool and wipe her hands to clean them. And this was what she must do. When she died, uh, her father and, and brought her in. It was quite late at night. And they said, she must hold her. And at the time, I thought, is this a good thing? Jessica wanted to, so she did. And recently, I said to her... What do you remember about Imogen? And she said, I remember everything. And I said, OK. And she started to say things. And I said, oh, you really do. I said, how do you feel about it now? And she said, look, I have really, really sad memories, but I have no bad memories of that. Because I you know... See, it's, very, it's very enlightened, I think. It's very enlightened it's to, so to allow cool. her to have held Absolutely. her sister. Yeah. It's, it's the hiding it away. It's a very bad thing. And she that... really didn't have... I mean, she cried and she was still... We all still we talk about it. But she said there was nothing secret. There was nothing I didn't know. All my questions were answered, even though I was only seven. Everybody looked after me as well. I was involved with her. And she said, there's, there's nothing... How could anything be bad about that? It's terribly important, this is, isn't it? Because so often with death and other children, we try and protect, we try and protect children from the, the idea of death. And actually, it sometimes when you make it into some sort of secret, that's when trouble is, that's when it becomes... Well, How many people do you know, probably a lot, who've never seen a dead body? Yes, yes, look, and, and, of course. And who don't want to and are worried about it and think it's something horrible. And if they have to go and identify somebody in a hospital or they go to an undertaker, they cannot cope with it. Now... For Jessica, this was part of, of, of her childhood. Yes, her absolutely died. right. And I really think, you know, the day, remember the days when, maybe they still do in some countries, you know, the deceased is brought home and kept at home, even if it's only overnight, that people come and pay their last respects with an open coffin. And that's so important that people see, and it's not some horrible, hideous, scary thing. It's just the person you loved who is... The body has died, and you come to say goodbye. And what's scary about that? But people are frightened of it. And I think an awful lot's to do with the fact that it's been hidden now for 50 years, hasn't it? Death has been hidden. Yes. I mean, we're just the opposite of the Victorians, where they were open about death and hidden about sex, and we're open about yeah. sex and hidden about death, aren't we? There's got to be a taboo. I think maybe communities need a taboo. I don't know. I mean, this is just making this up as I go along. But given that sex is no longer of any sort, yes. um, maybe death has to be, there has to be something that we've got to be furtive about. 
obviously not everybody, and it's maybe it's getting a bit better, but I don't think it's got much better uh, with children. And I picked up a, a Twitter feed from somebody the other day, a young woman whose husband was dying of cancer, and he was on his last days, and she put a photograph of her husband in his bed with their little boys about nine or ten. And she said, I made the decision now to bring Harry in to say goodbye to Chris while Chris could still talk to him. And there they were together in this bed, Dad as far as he could with his arms wrapped around his boy, his boy with his head on Dad, and held each other and managed to talk. The boy went home, Dad died the next day. And I think that's so important that that happened and she made that happen because he won't have a bad memory. He'll miss his father. It will be sad. But how awful would it have been if she said, no, I don't think you want to see your father and he hid, hid him away? My mum uh, my mum lost uh, um, my brother, Jonathan. Uh, he was 10 months and he died in a cot death. It's before I was born, but still part of the sort of family. Oh, yeah, and she remembers, they just woke one morning and he was dead in the cot. Was, I mean, it's just, you know, it's part of the sort of really, really... T- and 10 months is very, very late. Um, oh, God, and yes. uh, it's sort of part of the sort of part of what shapes our family. But my mum talks about it. I think this has been one of the most important things pastorally for me, one of the most important stories pastorally for me. She tells a story of people who, because they didn't know what to say and didn't want to upset her, used to avoid her in the yeah. sort of supermarket aisle and things yeah. like that. People didn't, and they still don't. And it's this, it's this, even if people say, I'm sorry for your loss, I quite like that formulaic thing, actually, sometimes that Irish that people say, because it, it gives you something to say when you don't know what to say. But actually, that the idea that, oh, I don't want to upset her, I don't want to talk about it, it's bollocks, it's yeah. just rubbish, you know. I did um, quite a bit of work after in the springtime came, in the springtime of the year came out I did quite a bit with Cruz the bereavement uh, charity which asked me to do and I gave a speech, they had a big conference in the Queen Elizabeth Hall in 1988-9 and I did a speech in front of, I don't know, a thousand bereavement counsellors, psychiatrists doctors, it was huge and I thought first of all, I have no authority to be here what have I got to say and I thought right I just say it as it is. I just tell. So I told the story of my mother dying, which was kind of got wrong. And everything was wrong about her illness and her death and the whole thing. And the story of David dying and my fiancé, which was a huge, massive shock, which sort of broke me for about three years. And the story, which, which was right but not right, because the whole experience was so dreadful for so many people... And the story of Imogen, which was very sad, but somehow got right. And I just said, look, I've just got three stories about death and how not counselling, but friendship and love and help really got us, got me and us through each of these in different ways. And this is what bereavement counselling is about. It's not about help telling somebody how they should do this. It's just about being there and and holding your hand through it. Yeah. Yeah. And... The most extraordinary thing about that was, at the end of it, the um, patron of Cruz at that time was Countess Mountbatten, whose father, as you know, um, was killed in an IRA bombing in Ireland. And she was a patron. She was at the my speech and she came up to me. I didn't know her. And she said, I want to thank you. And let's go into a corner and talk. She said, because I have unfinished business 
and I so desperately want to go to the place where my father was killed. But they won't let us. Security, IRA, nineteen eighty-eight. It was still, um, it was still too dangerous. They couldn't have gone. And she said, "I just feel, as you say, that some deaths are finished and dealt with and accepted." And she said, "Until I go there, you know, one of her twin sons was killed. The boy, boat boy, was killed. Mount Batten was killed. Her mother was very badly injured." And she said, "I just feel this is still happening every day." I want to go back there. And I said, I, I haven't got an answer to that, except you must somehow, you must go. You must make them go. If they take you in the middle of the night, you know, in a but you don't, they don't have to know you've been there. I think she did go. It, it's a time to talk about ghost stories, I guess, because you're, yeah. you're that's, 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 uh, I mean, in, in a way, unfinished grief is the sort of, spiritual tributaries i guess into yeah. the ghost story would that does that seem right yes i think it does i mean ghost stories are, are strange aren't they they're difficult because they're fun i mean what i write is entertainment yeah. i love writing them i try to write them as best i possibly can in terms of the writing i like my ghost stories to have a purpose as well i couldn't just write the sort of ghost story where, OK, there's a ghost and it drifts up the stairs with its head under its arm and then somebody else sees it doing it and, oh, how, how frightening, end of. There's no point in that. I always think there's got to be a point whether the ghost is returning for reasons of revenge from something that happened in life, like the woman in black. Maybe they're coming back to impart a message, a secret that they know and have taken to the grave, where the will is hidden or where the justice should be done that wasn't done, all of that. And I think grief has got to be, if, if you're taking it seriously as a form, which I do, um, unresolved grief yeah. is the sort of essential in a ghost story. Unfinished if, business. Unfinished business. But unresolved grief is so terrible. I do think we all get the chance, if we're alive, you can resolve it in some way. Like Countess Matton wanting to go to that place where father died. Like Imogen, like us holding her and having the whole thing dealt with properly. All those griefs can be dealt with 50 years later, if you like. They can be, if it's, if it's right. Because going to old age and your own death with unresolved grief is a very sad thing. And it's part of life that you need to get to grips with. Birth and death. And we're all right at birth now, aren't we? I mean, I don't mean birth is necessarily all right. But, but on the whole, we, we again, it's one of those taboos. Nobody would know what was going on. I just remembered when I was a child, I told you we went to Scarborough. My mother found this nursing home in which to give birth. And the matron of the nursing home it was a small. They don't, those nursing homes don't exist any longer for people to have babies because, of course, they weren't safe. But... Um, the matron of the nursing home became a great friend of my mother and I used to visit there often. My mother used to go to tea and help with the teas because she was, you know, basically on her own. My father was away and I used to go. And sometimes I went there if my mother wanted to go out for an evening, I would go there and spend the night. And Auntie Matron, as I called her, because she was the matron, Auntie Matron used to take me to see patients who were either dying or terminally ill or just permanently ill. There was one wonderful, sad little lady who was a um, Victorian spinster, only child of parents who had died, and she had Parkinson's disease, and it had robbed her of everything, speech, movement, except her mind. 
And she lay in this bed. All that happened to her every day was she was turned, she was fed, she was put on the loo. And otherwise, she just lay there. She had cousins who came once a month to spend an hour with her, and that was that. So I used to go and talk to her. Miss Hyde. I used to, as a little girl of five, six, seven. And I knew instinctively that she couldn't really say anything back to me, but I used to rattle on about my friends in school and our dog, and, and I knew that she loved it. And she had a tin of humbugs on her little dressing table, and I knew that she wanted to ask me if I would like a sweet. And I also instinctively knew that I mustn't interrupt her what she tried to say. And she did manage to say, it took ages, do you like a sweet? And I could say, yes, please, and she would, I would get one. And she died, thank God. And my, I happened to be going there, and I was only about seven. And my godmother said, do you want, me to, do you want to come and say goodbye to Hyde? She was, they called patients by their surname. And I said, oh, yes, because she's dead, you know, now. She died. She's with God. And it's, I went up and there was Miss Hyde. And I said goodbye to her and kissed her on the cheek. And that, again, it was being given death. In uh, where we lived in, the, in Scarborough, we lived in a top flat, a sort of private block of flats converted into, into flats. And in the garages down below, nobody had a car then. So in one of the garages was a carpenter. And he had his workshop in this garage. And I used to go and see him. And basically what he did, apart from making wardrobes and shelves, was make coffins. And I would sit on his work on one of his workbenches while he measured, took his measurements because he'd been to measure up the body. And he took his measurements and he made the coffin and he sawed and he planed. And I used to get all the little curled rolls of wood shaving to play with. And he talked to me and I knew all about which coffin it was and who it... You know, when I think about it, my mother... Never said, well, you shouldn't really go and chat like that to Mr Tyndall because it's not, you know, he measuring coffins for dead bodies. But she just said, oh, yes, that's fine. He was quite elderly then. Um, and we nattered away. He taught me how to whistle. I'm a very good whistler still. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm tempted to get you to whistle. <laughs> <laughs> not very good. My lips are dry. Oh, yeah. He, uh, the coffin maker who taught me to whistle. What about that for a title? That's child? good. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> But one day he said, right, I can't, I can't talk to you here today because I'm going up to the nursing home to, to measure road. Do you want to come with me? I said, oh, oh, OK, I did my mum, I'm going. Went up and he said, right, you go on the back of my bike. So there's me on the little funny little back saddle and we cycled off and I went to the nursing home, went in while he measured up two bodies and I thought, oh, well, yeah, right, OK, you know. Got this story is impossible today. It's, it but feels it, like it's impossible today. But when people say to me, why do you write about death so much? Why do your books end in death? So I think my childhood was surrounded and, and entwined with it in a good way. That sounds ridiculous. I understand completely. But what I don't understand about today is you, because, as you rightly say, death is is sort of pushed out of view... Why there isn't, where the release for that is. So there's got to be a release, a sort of cultural release for that. And I can see how a ghost story in a part might be another way of, of release, uh, one way. But actually they're not all that prominent in our sort of no. literary culture, no, are they? More so more than they were, but I don't know. I mean, I think with Dickens, something like with a great moral ghost story, A Christmas Carol, I can see why people actually have learned an awful lot from that story over the, the decades. But on the whole, no, and it's not an adequate substitute. Obviously, people can't go as they used to, to do. 
um, into the nursing homes when they're seven years old. And but no. they still can be a bit closer than than. Yes, I don't know where it goes. I mean, because I mean, do you think it's to do with lack of belief? I mean, the 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 the, the, the keeping it all keeping it death away is somehow. Because um, that's the end, and you don't want the end to come, and you're frightened of the end. Nothing happens. There's no God. There's no afterlife. So don't go near it. Yes, yes, yes. it when it happens, I don't want to know. You know, I don't, I don't want to be there when I die. Is the great thing. But yes. you know, your wife is Jewish, and your children are Jewish, or half Jewish. Yeah. Um, the Jewish culture embraces death yeah. much better than we do. Yeah. We Christians. I mean, I know you're Christian, but you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even. Even secular Judaism embraces and and sort of like looks at death more looks it squarely, yeah. you know. And I think it's a very, I think it's one of the great failures of our culture that we are unable to just face this thing. And so there's there's always something. There was a there was a report out just this week about our children being having uh, British ch- school children are amongst the least. It was sort of one of these league tables. You take yeah. up a certain amount of pitch top. But in terms of, like, life has meaning or purpose and so forth, we're like, of all the countries in the world, I think we're second from bottom in terms of life having meaning having or purpose. Meaning. And like, if you, terrible. It's really, really terrible. And if you don't actually look at, you know, the, the, the sort of constituent elements of our humanity, of which death is a sort of... That's part of what it is to be human. Of course, you've got to accept it from practically from day one. Yeah. I tell you what, Giles, because I want to talk about this, even if you're the boss here, uh, but I do find it it, it goes back to my childhood as well. Anti-Semitism. Remember, I was born in 1942, Mm. so it was still the war. Mm. We were still in the thick of that. And we went then and afterwards, we went to stay with my grandmother who lived in Sheffield and then moved in her retirement, moved to Southport, near Liverpool, lots of Jewish people about. And they were Church of England, the traditional go to church on Easter Day and Christmas Day. But I remember my great aunt saying to me, "Um, you do know, don't you, that the people in the flat we've got, they had a flat that they let, are Jews. And I said, I suppose I was then, what, eight or nine? I said, yeah, but I don't think I really know what Jews are. I knew about the Old Testament and the New Testament, but I was a bit vague and I knew yeah. about Hitler and she said well so she explained and and she said now I want you to listen to me because I don't know what your mother thinks but this is what I think she said Jewish people are good people and we're Christians and they don't believe in that Christ was the son of God and we do but they are the tree trunk and the root and we are the branches and we are inextricably bound up with Jews don't you ever let anybody tell you that Jews are not good people and that you mustn't have anything to do with them. And some people will say nasty things about them, and especially around here, because it was a little... Liverpool particularly was a bit anti-Semitic in those days. A lot of people were. She said, and a lot of people don't agree with me, so you don't have to talk about it, but I just want you to remember this. I have never forgotten it, Giles. And I genuinely don't understand anti-Semitism. I don't understand, I mean, Hitler's a whole separate subject. I don't understand why people don't like or respect Jews, why they hate them, why they want to see them out of our lives. I, it's something I simply don't understand. No. And to, see it, and to see it, and to see it come back, to see it come, uh, to back. See it come back, yeah. and, and to see it as a part like, of our politics, our politics I mean, is shameful. It's not that long ago, is it? That, that there was the Holocaust. We're not talking about 
1722, we're talking about my lifetime. And how can this be? I, I just find it not only shocking and terrible and disgraceful, I just find it bewildering mm. because mm. the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion and the Jewish Old Testament, for goodness sake, ought to be part of my Christianity. They mm. are. Mm. Mm. Um, without the Old Testament, without the Jews, Christianity doesn't exist. And do you think the Labour Party has a particular problem with this? I think it has recently. I'm not sure that it used to. I mean, I was a Labour voter. I, As you know, I had to choose, sort of. Um, and I was a Labour voter until I was, what, 35? And gradually came round to thinking that this I was actually more of a Conservative and now a Conservative. I feel very, very sorry for anybody now who is, like my father was, absolutely devout Labour Party stalwart member, as I used to be, though I wasn't a member of the party, because he wouldn't know where he was. And where has this come from suddenly? This is recent. Do you think the Labour Party was anti-Semitic in, say, 1950? No, I don't. No, I All those people like Ackley and Gateskill and so on, they they weren't. No. No, What is it? Is it Israel? uh, Are we getting to the... No, Israel's poisoned. I mean, being married to an Israeli, I can tell you... Of course. Tell you what happens. This is what happens. This is what I notice, is that... You and I sort of like are on Twitter. Twitter is one of the ways in which this you can see this. Oh, yeah. So I've been away in Israel for the last few months. Uh, I can I'll just tweet something like saying, uh, you know, having a nice lunch uh, in Tel Aviv, nice bottle of red, and there was someone to say, what about the occupation? I can say, I'm on the beach with my kids, isn't this nice? You know, just a silly Twitter picture of, of me. Some nasty uh, anti-Semitic. And someone will just come back. Well, they won't do that. They'll just come back and say, what about the everything you do. It's like, what about the occupation? What about? And after a while, you go, you suddenly realise there's nothing. By the way, there's nothing wrong with with saying what about the occupation because no, the no. occupation, the occupation is a is a terrible thing. is is a wickedness actually. Yeah. Um, again, I believe. That's a sort of separate subject. Almost. But the idea that all Jews are always and everywhere responsible for a particular policy of the Israeli government yeah. in a way that no one would say that all Indians are responsible for the Indian policy in Kashmir. You right. go, so you don't say, I go for a nice curry, and someone says, what about Kashmir? Absolutely. It's like, you don't, they don't do that. But isn't it also, um, we are all responsible for slavery. You and I, everybody now, somehow we look back into history and we're responsible as members of the British Empire or whatever of our ancestors were. We're responsible for slavery and we must apologise. Slavery was a terrible thing and it was dreadful and it's good that mostly it has now, it's a different sort of slavery, it's long gone. Um, Thank you to people like Wilberforce. But I'm not responsible for it, you know, just because my ancestors... I mean, this is so nonsensical. Often when you get interviewed, you get write-ups about Tory this Tory. Somebody wanted a comment about the Conservative Party and about Brexit, I suppose, a bit. And they wanted a comment or an, a, a piece to add onto an article from a Tory pro-Brexit writer or artist of some kind. And the comment that came back, it was on Facebook and a friend of mine showed it, was, I don't think there are any. And he said, well, I can find one for you if you like. But it's this, it's not just we disagree with you. It's not just you're wrong. I mean, my view about being a conservative and how I came to it is that we actually all want the same thing. We want a fairer society and a juster society. We don't want extreme poverty. We don't want any sort of poverty, but particularly not extreme poverty. 
and then you remember Jesus saying the poor are always with you, and indeed it seems to be the case. We want uh, justice for everybody who's treated unjustly. We want a society in which people can prosper, in which people can work hard and keep some of their reward, but on the other hand can share it with those who need it. It is just a question of the way to get that. And I believe that the capitalist society has been proven to work. It's not perfect what system is. And that socialism and Marxism has time and time again not worked and failed and has actually done poor people and ordinary people more harm than good. Now, this is just a question of the means. You can disagree with me. Anyone can disagree with me. But how has it become, so you're a so-and-so and I hate you and you should go to hell because you're a Tory and I would never speak to you again and I will block you and I will... I think, hang on a minute. It's like, do we build this house of concrete or brick? I think brick's better. You think concrete's better. Which works best? Well, concrete's actually got a bad reputation. On the other hand, brick... We don't have to fall out. And we have a general election to sort it out. I mean, that's what it is. You have different means yeah, and mechanisms, exactly. and that's what yeah. we're... We get a, an architect to arbitrate between us, and, and you sort it out. But the, it but is... Why am I hated? The, there is a... There is, Tories are scum type of attitude. Uh, Tories are scum. They're racist. They're fascist. Um, they're stupid and thick, you know. They're they they sort of want the Muslims out of their city and so. God, for goodness' sake, where did this come from? Of course, some people are racist and fascist on every side, but why? It's so simplistic, and it's also stupid. And really, we have enough problems in our lives, don't we, and in our world without making them worse and making them. I mean, we go back to death. I look at people and think. You go on about your this as if you were immortal and, it, you know, go out on your bike today, what might happen to you? I mean, I'm sorry, I think the older you get, you have to be aware, not only that you're not immortal, because when you're a kid, you think you are. And when you're growing up, you, you have to think you are in a way because you've got to get on with your life. But now I think if you don't address death at my age, I mean, I'm nearly 78, and if you don't do it, when are you going to? Are you going to run away and hide? Are you going to say, I don't believe in anything, so I'm just going to let it happen when it does and I hope it won't? Or what? Or are you going to sit down? A clergyman I knew who was a canon at Coventry Cathedral, wonderful man, Stephen Verney, retired. Oh, yeah. He lived until he, lived yeah. he was in his 90s, but he actually retired when he was 70. And I said, what are you going to do? Stephen, are you going to sort of be a peripatetic vicar? And he said, well, I'll do a bit of that and see more, more of my family. But he said, you know, what I really want to do now is sit down and work out and think about death. Because I've been busy all my life running around being a clergyman and a canon and half running a cathedral. I've now got to sit quietly and think, what does it all mean? And face my own mortality. And face everything. Look at what might be, why not be... What do I really, really believe when the chips are down? Not what I preach, not what I think I believe. I'm going to look it all in the face from square one. I thought, gosh, we, he, he actually had 22 years to do that. And I think he, <laughs> <laughs> he would have done. I could probably do it. I think probably 22 years to do that's a bit <laughs> miserable. Enough. But we've got to, you know. Mm -mm, I understand to. that. I understand that. And some things I still don't understand about certain sorts of Christian belief. I was talking to somebody the other day who's very evangelical. I, I try hard about evangelicals and I, I can't really see where they're coming from, this literalism. But she said, I like to go on long walks and talk to God. And I said, right. 
and then I find out what I'm to do about X, Y, and Z, and this and my pattern for life, and I go up, you know, walking in the Scottish hills for, and God tells me, and we don't, and I said, listen, I don't understand you. I am a believer. I don't understand how you can distinguish between what you're just answering yourself in your own head. And maybe you have some good ideas that bits of you that are unconscious, you give yourself time for them to surface. But how can you say that is God and that is not? I, I, I don't get this at all. And she said, well, this is a terrible thing to say. You know, we all must have an individual personal relationship with God. And I said, how do you do this? Because I would always think I'm answering that in my own head. I want that. So I'm going to say. Your, your, a lot of your religious sensibility, it, it strikes me, is is this sort of very strong sense of this other, oh, which yes. is mysterious and present, but mm. but is sort of you know unknowable. Uh, th- there is, I mean, that's the part of the of Jewish. Unknowing. That's part of you know Moses going up the mountain. The higher he gets up the mountain, the more the cloud is there, and maybe the I'm less, Jewish, John. There's, well, there's a but well, as was Jew- Jesus, by the way. So. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but so, I mean, this is exactly it, and I think that believe that you have every answer given you in the Bible is just nonsense. I mean, it is nonsense. This, this, so later in life, your partner was a woman. And I'm just no, trying yeah. to now I'm just trying to work out whether also that experience in terms of dealing with those people who are sort of biblical literalists and all that sort of stuff. Has... Um, it's never been difficult for me. Right. Um, I think she's found it difficult. She has family who don't approve of well, you know, the Bible says. Although, of course, it's always easy to condemn. And then when your son or your daughter or your sister or your brother or whatever either becomes gay or whatever, do you cut off with them? Do you cut your family tie with them because of something you sort of think is wrong? I mean, it always gets harder. Some people do, of course. Some people just cut off, don't they? They cannot accept it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yes, yes. I remember reading the, the the widow of, sorry, the mother of a multiple murderer. Um, he died in hospital, this multiple murderer. I can't even remember who it was. And the mother was quoted as saying when she was very old, I always condemned what he did. I could never, ever think of him in the same way again. It was appalling, and I've lived with the horror and the shame of it. But he was still my son, and I always loved him. Of course. And that's all you say, really. It's a rather beautiful thing to say. It's rather exactly what has to be said. Yeah. What are you going to do for Christmas? What's your Christmas? I imagine I have a sort of like, I have this sort of fond idea that up on the Norfolk coast near the sea... Your Christmas is rather idyllic. We're not going to be in Norfolk. I'm actually going down to my elder daughter in Hove, near Brighton, by the sea. Sea just round the corner. Different sea, you know, but it's still the sea. And there there will be my elder daughter, her husband, her little girl, my granddaughter, my younger daughter, my husband, and my partner. Oh, wow. And me. Wow. So we're all having, you know, a big family Christmas and it'll be lovely because a seven-year-old, it's still magic at Christmas with a seven-year-old, but it'd be lovely for us all to be together. Everybody gets on fine, you know, and, and that's couldn't be better, really. Susan Hill, happy Christmas to you. And to you, Giles. It's been lovely. At last, we've got together on Very this. nice too. Very Thank nice. You. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. <laughs>